Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fregel Byrne. Every week I speak to leading sustainability thinkers and practitioners, scientists, economists, NGOs, business leaders and investors. We discuss the sustainability imperative, the key challenges, the latest thinking and what's working in sustainability, resilience and regeneration. Just as 50 years ago, when the world used international treaties to defuse the threats posed by nuclear weapons, today, the world needs a fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty, a global initiative to phase out fossil fuels, support dependent economies, workers and communities to diversify away from fossil fuels, ensure 100% access to renewable energy globally, and importantly, ensure a just transition that leaves no one behind. You can show your support for this vital initiative at fossilfueltreaty.org. I'm very pleased today to welcome Hans Ulrich Obrist to the podcast. Hans is a Swiss art curator, critic and historian of art. He's artistic director of the Serpentine Galleries London, which has embedded environmental and ecological concerns across its programs and activities and research around ecology and climate change. He recently edited the book, 140 Artists, Ideas for Planet Earth. So thank you very much, Hans Ulrich, for joining me today on the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Thank you so much for the invitation to be on your podcast. It's, it's very exciting. Wonderful. So you're just back from the Biennale. So uh, it'd be interesting to get your perspective on that. But maybe just before we start, if you can just talk a little bit and tell us a little bit about what you actually do and the work and the focus of the Serpentine as well. Uh, yes, I basically um, started in 2006 in London, initially as a co-director and then um, later on as artistic director. And we, I would say quite soon when I came back to London in 2006, reconnected with um, the late Gustav Metzger. And uh, Gustav was always a, a really important figure for me already in the 90s when I was a young curator. I worked in Paris at the Museum of Modern Art. Uh, he, of course, um, is an influential avant-garde figure of the 60s, very important for his actions, for his autodestructive art, for the symposium he did, but also just for the yeah the radical position he took in, in the art world. And he, um, I remember he came to the office in, I think, 2006, more or less the second week I was back in London and we started to work on the marathon, which is a kind of a polyphonic interview series um, we're doing where we have interviews and conversations and performances over 24 hours. And uh, it was, uh, we tried to make a portrait of London. And, uh, and Gustav started to talk about the extinction crisis. And he started to talk about the fact that institutions should address the extinction crisis and actually not just by doing a show, but in a way by... Uh, in a more sustained way, institutions should sort of put that in the center, art institutions in the center of what they do. And um, we always, of course, listen to artists and that dialogue with Gustav was very important. So we, we did a retrospective with him, with him um, and we did this marathon with him. And whenever we did a project the next day, the next morning, he would again be in my office and say, you know, don't stop. We have to continue now. It's just begun. This topic is not going to go away. So he really was instrumental in, in, in somehow putting this center stage at the Serpentine in everything we do and also um, uh, going beyond it being, you know, an exhibition or an event. It's somehow becoming part of the, of the DNA. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Very interesting. And we talked maybe a little bit about uh, some of the, the work you've done and, and, and uh, the shows and things. But just maybe also, can you tell us what's on your mind environmentally and climatically, shall we say, at the moment? Clearly, many, uh, many, many converging uh, interlinked crises right now in the world of, of different areas. But what is on your mind most when it comes to the environment and ecology? Yeah, I think. I think what is um, what is important is is that we start to think beyond the the sort of short termism of um, of many of you know the events uh, that are not only in the outdoor but in general and that we start to think about more long durational format and I mean there is an excellent book by Roman Kajanik where Roman talks about this idea of uh, of actually how we can liberate in a way society from from short termism and. And think about projects with a, a longer time horizon, and you know if that's um, uh, you know the global seed world, or if that's you know projects which actually maybe are more like gardens, metaphorically and real, than exhibitions which evolve over over a long time. And that's definitely at the forefront of my mind because I think you know we always working with artists, we realize that they change the way they work right now, and they're not interested in in sort of short term sort of formats. So. We need to sort of bring in slow programming into um, into institutions and think how we can, uh, uh, yeah, how we can actually contribute to this transition from short-termism to more longer-term thinking. I think the other thing which is on our mind is, of course, also how we can actually uh, have a project which is about change, but at the same time is also a catalyst for change. And that's, of course, leading us to back to Earth, where we have... Um, invited artists to do ecological campaigns and it began really with um, um, again with Gustav Metzger we started with his remember nature kind of action which he did here in 2015 a project by the artist and political activist Gustav Metzger it happened actually on first of the on first of November on November, it happened on the first of November of 2015 and that's um, a day of action to highlight the topic of extinction. And his call to action actually urged arts professionals and students from all disciplines to actually create new work, to remember nature, and to address global issues such as extinction, climate change, and also environmental pollution. And uh, we did a collaboration with the Serpentine and Central St. Martin's College of Art and Design and in art schools nationwide on the day and um, uh, that was of course a following up on the many things we did with Gustav on the theme of extinction. Yeah, we did an extinction marathon in 2014. We did his exhibition Decades 59 to 2009 in 2009 and all of these projects with him addressed climate change and its catastrophic effects. And, and I remember Gustav said that the, this appeal, the Remember Nature appeal, was for the widest possible participation from the world of the arts and he wanted to be at the forefront of this struggle. Um, and as he, as he told us, we have to no choice, but we have to follow the path of ethics into aesthetics. We live in societies suffocating in waste. So, so these, some quotes from Gustav Metzger. And I would say this, you know, worldwide call, remember nature, is very much on our mind now because it's also the question of what each of us can actually do. And, uh, uh, and, and, and of course, that's um, 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 something we try to address in Back to Earth, but also in this book, 140 Artist Ideas for, 
for planet Earth. And, and um, to quote the, the writer Alexis Pauling Gams, who says that we have the opportunity actually now as a species fully in touch with each other to unlearn and relearn our own patterns of thinking and storytelling in a way that allows us to be actually in communion with our environment, as opposed to a dominating and also colonialist separation from the environment. And, and I think that's very much, I think, on our mind every day. How can we contribute to this idea of a communion with the environment? And how can we oppose this, you know, dominating or colonialist separation from the environment? And I think what's also on my mind is, of course, how we can use technology um, to do so. Because, of course, um, uh, technology gives us the possibility today to, to be in touch with each other. Because as we know, it also creates the filter bubble. It, it actually doesn't necessarily bring us together. It, it can polarize. And that's why I think we need to think today also how we can use technology. As the late poet Etel Adnan told me, she passed away last year. She was 97. And the, at the very end of her life, which lasted almost a century, she told me the world needs togetherness, not separation. Um, the world needs a common future, uh, not isolation. And the world needs love and not suspicion. And, and these lines are definitely on my mind every day. Very interesting. Yeah, I, I spoke to Roman uh, earlier in the series about long-term, longer-term thinking and also a wonderful Icelandic poet, I don't know, you know, Andre Sneer Magnusson, who has this idea of intimate time as well, you know, the duration between generations, um, which is very interesting. And uh, you, you also mentioned this question of technology, um, which is... Uh, you know, I think very important. And uh, there's a new book, I think, which uh, which is fascinating, which has just come out by Jonathan Crary called Scorched Earth. And he is very critical of the of technology, really, and how, uh, how, how we are seduced by the possibilities of the technology, but how it has uh, disappointed and uh, the problems associated with it in terms of people working together to try and deal with these these problems and so forth but very interesting what 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 gives you optimism would you say right now yeah magnuson's book um the the Icelandic writer is indeed very interesting in relation to that also in terms of uh, multi-generation decision making about being yeah and being um thinking about this idea of long-term thinking and um yeah, yeah, it's a very interesting book. So you've just spoken to him a little while ago. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, so interesting to hear the, the the kind of worries, but I suppose it's also good to think about. You know, things are changing. There's momentum on, on you know in a number of fronts. What seeds of optimism do you see, Hans Ulrich? Um, I mean, I see a lot of optimism also in DIY. You know, in DIY actions, actually. Um, and um, and that's of course what we try to do with 140 artists ideas for planet Earth in in the book and also in the forthcoming you know back to Earth exhibitions where we also can have a poster project with all these different artists campaigns and there you know we share the practice and sharing of DIY actions um, and there is of course a long history for that you know in art um, from Marcel Duchamp who's you know send instructions for. Um, uh, for a ready-made, you know, a realized, he sent it from Argentina actually to Paris. Um, um, it's the unhappy ready-made instructions to be realized on the balcony, you know, Amor realized artworks over the telephone, Yoko Ono's grateful book. So I think it's really interesting how that today is sort of articulated very often related to the environmental or the extinction crisis and, and uh, how we can actually um, have 
see these artist projects, which are, you know, encouragements or triggers or instigations for very uh, concrete action. So if I think, for example, the designer Martino Gampo, he um, uh, wrote this text, uh, I'm going to read it uh, here now for you. He wrote this text called Collect Now. It's a, a short text of guidelines. He says, number one, go for a walk or swim and pick up a small item of plastic waste or other material from nature, from park, forest, mountain, or beach. This leads us to number two, recycle and dispose accordingly. Number three, repeat daily, increasing quantity. Number four, you'll quickly become an expert. Number five, collect with your patron friends or start a collecting group. And uh, he then concludes by saying equipment needed, a reusable rubbish bag, gloves, and tongs. No previous experience needed. Warning, this might become addictive. So in a way, you know, many of these pieces really give me optimism in the sense of that they mean that we can all, you know, do something. And of course, Martino Gampo is also uh, the, the designer who did this wonderful project with us, actually with the Serpentine in Milano as part of the Salone Mobile, when he, he installed these repair stations. And uh, so rather than to do an exhibition of design objects, he actually decided to, um, he decided to install in front of the exhibition venue small little kiosks where people could bring all kinds of objects, you know, leatherwares or shoes or bags, all kinds of things which they needed to be fixed. And, uh, and you know, great craftspeople helped them to actually fix the, the projects, helped them to fix the objects and, and repair them. In, in Italy, you know, in the context of design also leads us to the late Enzo Mari, who was a, um, whose work gives me hope. He was a, he passed away last year of COVID, but his you know, work continues to resonate. And I did a retrospective of his work at the Triennale, his, his last show during his life last year. And he's a visionary industrial designer, a furniture designer, a manifesto writer, you know, um, a polemicist, interesting connections to communism and the arts and craft uh, movement. And uh, it's fascinating because he early on really considered these issues of sustainability and accessibility through through the lens of design, and uh, is a is a, a a true role model because his objects and he's actually a role model for Martino, who is a younger designer, because his objects you know are made to last for good. So it's it's kind of they are to stay. It's it's the opposite of disposable waste of of resources, and and connecting it also to a passion for transformation, where form is everything. But he wants to create through these forms actually models in a way for for a different society. And that, of course, brings us also to another design show we did at the Serpentine, which gave me a lot of hope, which is the Italian group, Farmer Fantasma, two young designers from, from Italy who actually created an exhibition about, about timber and, uh, and showed us many different things about timber, showed us from Kew Gardens, some timber samples actually of extinct kinds of wood. So we have not only extinction of species, I think it's important that we think, you know, we have extinction of species, we have extinction of plants, but we also have extinction of many cultural phenomena. We have uh, at the moment an extinction of languages and that happens faster than ever before. Um, 
so they would sort of focus on this idea of extinction of wool, but they also, in the exhibition, showed us how irresponsible it is to fast design or fast fashion uh, that resources are used in an irresponsible way by actually showing how long a share of uh, a fast design company would have to last in order for the resources to be justified. And, you know, the chair would have to last somewhere in the whereabouts of 70 or 80 years. And, uh, yeah, so these are all projects which is kind of, you know, in design, but we could also talk about art. I mean, art always gives me hope. It's Gerhard Richter who once said uh, that art is the is the highest form of hope. No, I, I think that's a good place to, to focus maybe a little bit. I mean, Bill McKibben, I, I mean, it's some years ago now, but he, he asked, where is the art, you know, the, the, the outpouring of art that, you know, we compared, I mean, uh, just in, in when he's talking about, you know, with, with, with the AIDS crisis and the, you know, the, all of the politically uh, powerful outputs and so forth. I'm just wondering, you know, we, we've been aware We've known about the climate crisis for decades. The scientists have, have you know, done the research. Of, you know, uh, we know this. What role can art play when it comes to uh, our climate environmental crisis? How, how should we think about this question, Hans Ulrich? Yeah, it's a very, it's a very big question, and I don't think we can answer it, you know, with one answer because I think there are many possibilities how how art can can play a role. I mean, one. I think really important aspect is, of course, through through empathy, you know, in a way, and uh, and 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 a good example actually for that is maybe also the collaboration between Pirani Sundalinga, who is a, is a writer and a poet and an inventor, and the artist Olafur Eliasson, and they together work on this dumb phone, which is actually not a smartphone but a dumb phone. Um, they're also in dialogue with Jonathan Safran Fur about this. And uh, it's about actually, um, you know, a device which would make um, what we have today better, which would maybe rehumanize the planet, which would sort of upgrade what it means to, you know, to be, to be human. And um, uh, it's kind of the opposite of the devices, you know, we have, um, we have today and we lead also um, it connects, you know, art to neuroscience, and I think that's um, that's definitely, you know, an interesting example that we also have these new uh, these new collaborations. Because I think, in a way, very often, if you want to really address the big topics of the 21st century, and of course, the extinction crisis being uh, the major, major one of the major um, challenges of our century, um, I think we can only do that if we go beyond the fear. Of pooling knowledge, if we if we basically um, go beyond these silos of different industries, you no, know, which have been created, where people um, uh, don't have the dialogue with, with other fields, and and so it needs new team constellation, new collaborations, and I think particularly at this moment also where so many companies are, are challenged to pivot, and they have to pivot because otherwise um, we. You know, otherwise the, um, 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 the the issues won't be solved. So it needs a radical change now, a radical pivoting, um, and that means that actually an old idea is suddenly becoming very relevant again, which is the idea of Barbara Stevini and and uh, and Sean Latham, two um, visionary artists actually in the UK, and they came in they came in you know in the sixties up with this idea of the uh, of the APG, of the Art Displacement Group. 
and the idea was actually to bring uh, artists into society. The idea would be to not have this separation, you know, of art in the museum and then, uh, but actually to bring artists from the museum or the galleries into society. And that means that every company, every corporation uh, would have an artist in residence or an artist on the board, you know, artists would have a, a seat at the table and maybe could also contribute to dismantle the table, you know, as a matter of fact. And I think that's today, particularly with the climate emergency, where every company, every corporation, every brand, you know, is challenged to completely change the way they work. Artists can contribute in that, in that, uh, in that process. Right. Yeah. That, that's very interesting you say that because one of the things that a, a fascinating range of ideas, some very simple to a more elaborate and and uh, you know ideas as well as um, uh, you know thought exercises in in the 140 ideas for planet Earth. But just looking through it. I didn't see as much, you know, criticism, shall we say, of capitalist relations of, you know, relentless economic growth, you know, consumerism, those kind of ideas. Not so much, really. I mean, definitely Gustav's, you know, it starts with Gustav Metzger and his work had that in the in the very, you know, in the very center. But I do think that uh, um, um, I do think that we have, you know, real campaigns, hopefully, in the book. So we think, for example, Jane Fonda, um, who, of course, did the campaigning, you know, in Washington, D.C., she teamed up with two artists, Judy Chicago and Swoon, um, actually inviting everyone to create art for Earth. It was kind of a, a global creative response to the climate crisis to create images, you know, that offer an alternative vision, one that protects the planet, you know, and all living creatures, and that prompts, you know, and that promotes equity and justice for, for all. And that can go through many different ways, you know, through making arts, through singing songs, through creating performances, through reciting poems. And this can happen alone or with families or any kind of material that is available to whoever reads the book. And then all of that can be shared, you know, via pathways known or unknown. And it can demonstrate the many ways that art can heal, connect, transform, and make change. So that's their campaign, you know, create, create art for us. And then, of course, in terms of your question about capitalism, I think it's very interesting. I don't know if you um, um, if you spoke to Kate Rivers about the donut economics. Yes, yeah, yeah. I'm sure she's probably in your podcast, no? Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Great, fascinating work she's doing. Yeah, fascinating, you know, and I think it's very interesting that this is one of the books I've actually seen in so many artist studios because I think many artists are, wondering about a different economy also, you know, and about how we could find this safe space between planetary and, and social boundaries, an economy which not, we, we would not float, you know, on a kind of a, a neutral background, but, you know, where value actually would also be acknowledged, which doesn't actually get monetized, you know, such as unpaid caring work or environmental work. And, and for that, of course, you know, things have to radically change because we need an economy which has an inner ring of well-being, as Kate says, and an outer ring which protects actually, you know, life support systems of, of the planet. And uh, we have many artists responding to that. And, you know, we'll have collaborations also. Of course, you know, Brian Eno, I mean, it's interesting also how actually this project, uh, you know, started. We've been inspired by many, you know, Artists, I mean, Gustav Metzger was an inspiration, Etel Adnan, whom um, we're also quoting actually at the, 
at the very beginning, the poet uh, whom I already quoted before, you know, Etel, who says that she wishes we find back the natural rhythms of the world, um, that we can actually rise just when the birds start to sing and go to bed with the sun and sink in our dreams. I think that idea of reconnecting to the natural rhythms of the world is really present in a way in, in the book, kind of learning from Etel um, Annan. And then, of course, the inspiration from Case Ravers for um, for a different uh, uh, yeah for a different economy and actually Kate also wrote uh, a piece for the book where she says be regenerative by design work with and within the cycles of the living world be distributive by design share opportunity and value with all who co-create it and then create economies that aim to thrive forever rather than than grow forever. Yeah, but no, very interesting. I guess it's, I, I'm, I'm wondering about this idea, maybe it's not relevant at all, this idea of, well, maybe the avant-garde, do people still talk about that now? But is there what you might call dangerous environmental art in the sense, you know, that I guess is it Kafka talks about, you know, being the axe for the frozen sea within us, but that's, you know, radical, that that, that is, um, I'd be interested in, in you know, because there are some critical thinkers who, 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 who worry that you're fiddling around the edges or um, small change, that we need something really radical. I'm just wondering, in the art world, has have you seen much of that? You mean like new, um, like utopias in a way? Possibly. I mean, you know, I suppose there are movements that were associated with particular, you know, your dad and the wars, I don't know uh, whether there are movements, but I guess this more really radical, provocative kind of art. Thinking about concrete utopias, we are working on a show with uh, Thomas Saraceno, no, the artist, architect, designer um, from Argentina, who who really wants to think about mobility in a in a different way. And uh, with the arrow scene, you know thinks about the whole new model of flying and, and uh, uh, wants to change completely the way how mobility works on the planet. So I would say that's a, um, a rather big, you know, a rather big, a rather big project. So I think, yeah, it goes from micro to macro, I think, in a, in a way. Yeah, it goes from micro to macro. I mean, many, many artists kind of think about these planetary gardens, you know, at the moment. I mean, it's interesting um, that we have precious Okoyomon, you know, who gives us an instruction how to actually uh, write down our fears on a white square piece of paper, then folding it, setting it on fire, taking the ashes outside, putting it in dirt, planting a flower in the dirt, and repeating it until I have a garden. In the meanwhile, Precious is constructing, you know, bigger and bigger gardens and transforms actually, rather than to do exhibitions, does, does um, exhibitions, um, uh, you know, where, where the whole museum in a way, becomes uh, becomes a garden. We're also planting at the moment an AI garden uh, with uh, with Daisy Ginsberg. That's a project this summer um, at, the, at the Serpentine. We go from micro to macro, no? And, and, and that's, of course, also in the Remember Nature book, you know, like some are very sort of microscopic things, which if many people do it, it could make a contribution. But some artists have a more macro kind of vision. And I mean, it's interesting we mentioned there are a few examples, but we could add, for example, you know, Newton Harrison's campaign um, to actually categorically, you know, stop using plastic the, as a planetary campaign. You know, that's a rather big artist campaign. 
um, our Rose Vitis campaign to actually never throw away clothes, you know, to basically have a repair culture globally. Or, you know, the 95-year-old artist Gianfranco Barrochello, who, um, who actually became a farmer also as a sort of a, an agricultural society um, uh, and wanted to kind of make analogies between art and agriculture and uh, through that actually convincing everybody to stop eating meat. The cooking section project, you know, the, the artist collective cooking sections, I mean, that's also a, a kind of a concrete example of one of the campaigns. Um, they did a climbable uh, diet. They developed climbable recipes and we put them in connection or in touch with our restaurant, Benugo. Um, Benugo runs the restaurant in the Serpentine North Gallery. And uh, as a result, basically, of this, you know, contact we made, they are now closely collaborating. And uh, we have a majority of, you know, climbable dishes now on the menu. But not only in the Benugo restaurant at the Serpentine, Benugo got excited, so they're doing it in many of the other restaurants as well. And so that's another, you know, example of a campaign which can start small, but then maybe grow over time and become bigger. We have artists also thinking about farming, you no? Know? Like, for example, Ottobong Nakanga um, decided to, to start a farm as an art project in, in Nigeria. So, you know, I mean, m- many of these projects have to do with production of, of reality. And I think if you think about production of reality, it was fascinating also for us to work um, with the late Bernard Stiegler, the, the philosopher, yes, on, yes. Uh, on a... On a, on a marathon here about work, about the future of work. And uh, he actually said, you know, if you do a conference, it has to someone. That's really, it's been one of his last projects. Uh, when, you know, in 2019, he felt we needed to actually bring the results of the conference here, of the future of work, to the attention of Antonio Guterres, the Secretary General of the United Nations, right? So the idea was to bring the the, 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 you know, the, the results of the Serpentine um um, marathon to the attention of the, the Secretary General of the United Nations, Antonio Guterres, um, and uh, yeah, because he put out actually that the international efforts to commit to a greenhouse gas reduction actually compatible with the objectives set by the Paris Agreement, you know, have of course been ina- inadequate despite actually the forecasts, you know, and various other group by various other groups and teams of scientists. And the question is, you know, how can how could that be addressed? And it's interesting because. Um, in a way, he, he spoke about, you know, um, actually, uh, Stiegler spoke, spoke about the contributory researches where he wanted to bring together researchers from various academic fields and politicians into new networks of research and experimentation, a bit what Gutierrez called the inclusive, you know, multi, multilateralism in a way. So where actually territories would be able to experiment sustainable, solvent and desirable economic activities and technological tools, and where the aim would be to lead local societies to develop reproducible recommendations, you know, through rapid um, uh, transfer processes. And so it's interesting um, that that brings us back to Marcel Mauss and the book from 1920, La, La Nation, where he recommended actually that the development of internationalism should not be on the cost of territorial and, you know, cultural specificity. So he outlined actually what he called internation, which is a dynamic according to which nations should be called upon to cooperate without erasing their local, you know, differences. And that's where I also think 
that Eduard Lisson is very useful, the Martinican yes, yeah. poet and philosopher who was my mentor and teacher and friend, um, because in a way, um, um, he, he, he early on understood that the homogenizing forces of globalization will lead to an environmental crisis and disaster, that we need to resist those homogenizing forces. But he also realized that there will be a counter-reaction to these homogenizing forces, which will be new forms of localism and nationalism and lack of tolerance. Um, and that's why, in a way, I think it's important to think about Glissant's idea of mondialité and about, you know, um, uh, and about Mao's idea of intonation, which is where actually people and nations could cooperate, but it would be a global dialogue without losing the local, you know, kind of dimension. That's fascinating, the connection, because um, nowadays, I guess the more, it's it's difficult to deny the reality of, of global warming, but what it, it means in terms of the political responses is another question. And there's, you know, people wanting to close borders and and using, you know, uh, it in, in, in a more local way, but not necessarily in a progressive or helpful way. I'm, yeah. I'm just wondering, there was a quote uh, that I saw from Gary Hume, and it touches on a couple of topics, which um, be interested in getting your thoughts. And he says something about the people who do the most damage to the environment by my work, and I'm not using ecologically sound pain because I feel like apologizing I can't help the world and he touches on a couple of topics there which I'm just interested in getting your your, your thoughts on one is this question I suppose you know about about being uh, you know reducing the carbon footprint of the industry and there's you know a lot of consensus about that and so forth but more broadly as well I guess this question of the plutocrats the one percent the people who are buying you know driving a lot of the the the, the, the prices in in the in the global art market um, that are themselves you know uh, vastly over responsible for emissions and so forth and I'm just wondering to what extent the relationship between you know uh, the, the very very wealthy and art you know uh, can potentially overshadow the arts. Yeah, I think it's uh, it's a uh, an important point, and of course goes again back to, um, to 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 you know Gustav Metzger because he at a certain moment asked for an art strike. He asked also for a radical you know reduction of flying. You know his advice was to refly, reduce flying very significantly, and um, uh, so all of that is actually already you know in Gustav Metzger's work. Um, and of course, I think what what is important, I think it's always been important and will be important for art to be transnational, you know, and so also traveling will remain important, but I think there needs to be new ways of traveling, more sustainable ways of traveling, and Europe is so well positioned to really lead on that, you know, um, and actually set an example by um, reactivating its, its, its night trains and, you know, um, having um, uh, basically... Um, getting all the traffic from the plane to the train, no? And, um, and of course, you know, that's, that's essential. I think it's essential to radically reduce, you know, to radically reduce flying. And when, when I grew up, there were all these night trains in Europe and uh, one could just go, you know, to another city and wake up in the morning. And many of these night trains have disappeared and they have, of course, disappeared yes. because flying became so cheap and then, and trains are actually prohibitively expensive in comparison. So what we really need very urgently is a radical carbon tax on flying so that, you know, we will we'll become more attractive for trains and there will be more, you know, offer in, in train lines. The prices for trains will come down and hopefully the same will happen, which at some point happened actually with flying, that all of a sudden flying became very, you know, affordable, and that should happen again to trains by having a bigger supply and by, you know, reintroducing 
new lines and you're introducing these night trains. But it will only work, I think, you know, on a global scale if there is a really, really radical carbon tax. And, uh, uh, and that's, that's important. You were the first contemporary art institution to appoint a curator dedicated to ecology. Yeah, we, um, when Gustav Metzger kept returning to our office and say, you know, you must make this part of the DNA of the organization. This is not event culture. This is not the serpentine doing an extinction exhibition against the extinction crisis or an environmental show or a marathon or a lecture series. No, this has to be in the DNA of the organization every hour, every minute of the day. Then obviously it came to our mind that it could be relevant to actually reflect that also in the organic realm of the, of the, of the organization and have a, uh, a curator of ecology. So Lucia Pietro Justi became our first uh, curator of ecology. And uh, I think now many more museums are following that. And uh, uh, we, um, yeah, we believe that that's, that every museum, you know, could have that. It would be, would be great if, if that, that becomes, but not every museum. We actually think, you know, to go back to Latham, every organization uh, in a way. That's right. That's fascinating because rather than, you know, setting up new organizations per se, dealing with that, this, these questions have to be embodied in all the organizations, all the social organizations, all the organizations that we, you know, connect with in our lives. General ecology projects, which we have at the Serpentine as a, you know, as a, as a research project, which, you know, looks at, 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 at complexity, looks at environment, looks at climate change, looks at, you know, modern humanism looks very much, you know, also at the non-anthropocentric, you know, view of, um, of the planet. Um, and, and, and as part of this project, we, of course, also reflect, you know, very much what it means, you know, to do exhibitions, because we, I mean, you know, my profession is to be an exhibition maker. And, 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 and the medium of the exhibition will have to change if we want to make it more sustainable. And, and not only will change, has to change, is changing as we speak. And I think there are different aspects to it. I mean, one is, for example, that we exhibitions last longer, no? that, we, that we think about, goes back to what we discussed earlier, that we think about slow programming. Um, I think the second thing is that we think about um, exhibitions bundling transports, you know, that we don't have works from all over the world being shipped, you know, for an exhibition. So, for example, when we did our Hervé Telemark retrospective at the Serpentine last year, we decided to only show artworks. He's a painter from Haiti who has lived many, many years, many decades in France. So we decided to get, you know, to renounce on the loans from America, from Asia, from, you know, more remote places in Europe and to get all the loans from France, you know, where the artist lives so we could get loans from the studio and all the French museums who had acquired his work. And we were perfectly, you know, able to do a full retrospective of these artists just made out of French loans, you know. So it was just one, you know, van with, you know, with these, pic with these paintings. And uh, uh, it could be, you know, the idea of bundling. So that's, that's the longer, I would slower programming, bundling. And then another example is something which I started in, uh, in 1992. Actually, it's been kind of, yeah, it's been around for 30 years now, which is the, the Do It Project. And uh, the Do It Project is basically a project which we started with Potansky and, uh, and Lavier. And, and it's a project where we invited artists to write recipes and, uh, and instructions. And, uh, and 
DIY, you know, artworks. And that means the resources can always be locally sourced. Then after the exhibition, the, the resources return again into their, you know, original context. So they can be recycled, reused, upcycled. Uh, so there's no waste of resources. Um, and uh, and there is never, a you know, a transport involved because it's all it's all basically locally, you know, locally sourced. Um, and there is also nobody's traveling there because basically the exhibition is a local interpretation. It's an interpretation which happens locally, you know, of these recipes or instructions, you know, by the artist. And this exhibition has happened now in 169. I think by now it's 170, which is it's opened a new one. Has happened in 170, you know, places all all over the world. Um, and I think has been, you know, has been utterly sustainable. So I think we also just need new models of, of such shows, which maybe avoid transport all, you know, avoid transport all altogether. Yeah, yeah. How has the response to the Back to Earth project been? How, how long have you been running that? Um, it started, I mean, we can say it began really with Gustav and, you know, about 15 years ago, we began working with him. That's, that's when the seed was planted. And then um, more concretely, I would say approximately three, four years ago, we began inviting the artists to, these, to do these campaigns. And it's, of course, interesting because it no longer is a logic of, of there being kind of a central exhibition. I mean, there are lots of different windows are opening, you know, and if there is a poster project which creates awareness for the artist campaigns, or if there is a workshop, uh, you know, there's going to be uh, a series of conferences also. Um, and uh, there is also going to be, um, um, you know, an, ex a, 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 an exhibition part this summer. But all of these aspects, there isn't a hierarchy between them. They're all windows onto the project. And the project will continue to evolve. And it's also maybe interesting, actually, how, um, how the project started kind of concretely, because it started with Gustav, but then, there was a very concrete trigger because we invited Brian Eno to do a solo exhibition at the Serpentine about his uh, work with sound, but also his visual artwork. And uh, Brian accepted the invitation, but then suddenly had a doubt and came to the office to talk to us. And, uh, and he basically um, explained to us that, and to our teams that it isn't really possible for... Um, that it isn't really possible for him to do this show because he realized that if he thinks of an average um, life expectancy, um, he maybe have another, I don't remember now exactly, but maybe 15 years to live. And uh, that was exactly at that time a window which was given of the time we have to turn around the climate emergency. Of course, in the meanwhile, it's much less. Uh, but that's what, you know, the, the figure which was given then. And so he said he didn't really see the sense why he would do a show, a retrospective of all his work, whilst there is the opportunity to actually do a project where together with many people, we would address the, the climate emergency. And that's kind of when Back to Earth was born, because we not only, you know, listen to him, I mean, listening is, I think it's important to listen. I mean, Etelanan, uh, my friend, the poet, always said um, that we need to learn to listen again, no? We need to listen to plants, we need to listen to the planet, we need to listen to all species and we need to listen to each other um, on the planet. And um, yeah, and so we always listen, you know, to artists very carefully. And so we took Brian's intuition on board and, and it matched perfectly ours to you know, kind of put ecology so central in the organization. And of course, in the meanwhile, we had also, because of course what it also means is that the organigram of a museum then changes. You know, we have um, a couple of years ago, we started to have 
the new experiments without in technology. Uh, so we have a, a technology and science team. Um, we started to do more, work more civically, which means, for example, we work now with Barking Dagenham and um, have this project called Radio Ballads, where artists are in residency and that's civic curation to kind of bring art into society. And last but not least, very importantly, the you know environmental dimension. That means also that, of course, one, one has to create new positions in an organization, which is then also why we came up with this idea that the Serpentine would have a curator of ecology. Because, of course, there's the possibility of, of bringing art, you know, um, in, you know, into society. There is the possibility of having these new, you know, collaborative, you know, projects. Um, but I also think it's interesting that actually art can lead to an experience which is really like a wake-up call and which has to do with empathy and where people really change also their perspective, you know. And I think uh, we're going to have as part of, and, and performances are very important for that, you No know? life performances experiences and particularly now that we can gather again you know that we we can be together again and um uh and of course so we, are, we also for us when i was telling you about the the back to earth project we're gonna have artists projects you know we're gonna have um you know brian eno we realize a, a sonic piece you know around that um we'll have um tabita Rezer, who will create a kind of a yeah almost like a meditation room where we can literally connect to earth you know physically uh holistically but we'll also have quite a lot of performances. You know, we'll have um, in collaboration with Lewisham um, and the Lift Festival, we present Sun and Sea, which is curated by Lucia Pietro Justi, who's our first, you know, curator of ecology at the Serpentine. And it's an opera by Lina Lapelite, an opera, you know, with a libretto actually by Barbara Granite. And uh, it's it's uh, was presented first at the 2019 Venice Biennale. And it's this extraordinary, you know, Sun and Sea piece, which, does not leave anybody, you know, un indifferent. It really ruptures indifference to the environmental theme and, and makes people, you know, very engaged. And the same thing I think is true for a more recent performance, which I actually curated in Venice by Jota Mombasa, an interdisciplinary artist, very young Brazilian interdisciplinary artist who uses, you know, sonic and visual matter and created this multi-sensory artwork on an island, you know, during the Venice Biennale. So we tried to actually in Venice address this topic of uh, the climate emergency through a piece um, called In the Tired Watering, where for the first time, you know, since the 70s, this island was used, which now uh, the Rebarengo Foundation um, has and for, for our projects. And in the 70s, Jerzy Grotowski, Polish theater director, did actually there these radical experiments with Theater Laboratorium, you know, and, and, and Jota kind of Echo this apocalypsis configuris sort of because it's been they have been very busy with the apocalypse you know for 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 many many years and 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 the visitors were actually I mean no one left this island unchanged you know it, it had it had such a emotional impact because we, we we got to sense the flooding world we we listened to voices and sounds kept in the water and um and the performers kept addressing us directly all of us visitors on the island by saying You've got to leave, you know, water is coming. And, uh, uh, and, and there was this imagery of sinking, you know, and uh, 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 it was an emotional release, you know, which, which brought to the surface uh, a new inclusive planetary sensitivity. And I think that that's an important thing art can do, you know, if this emotional release can actually bring to the surface, as Jota says, this, this, this you know, planetary sensitivity, you know, this is really important.
Ah, very interesting. Very interesting. It was a question I wanted to ask earlier, and I'm mindful of the time. We're coming to the end now. But I, I, I don't know whether you, you saw the, well, the, the whatever is the power listing for, for the art world. It's the art form one. And I'm wondering what that says, the 2021, about the importance of environment and climate change. You, you mentioned you're at the Biennale and that there wasn't so much, uh, as many expected, of, of you know, environmental art. I mean, Anna Singh is number two on the list. And, you know, at the heart of her work, I guess, is this idea that, you know, uh, it's arts, somehow responsibility to reimagine the Anthropocene. But I'm just wondering, uh, do you have any thoughts on, on what, what, what that might reflect? You know, the, the degree to which uh, contemporary art is really addressing, engaged in the way it is with environmental questions. So I suppose that underlying question, if you look at the most powerful people within the industry, what does that say about the priorities, focus, intentions within the art world? Yeah, I think. I mean, for me, the the, the, the important thing is that we is that we kind of bring you know the world together now, and that I think it has a lot to do with the fact you know that um, it has a lot to do with the idea that we can you know connect the world of art to many other worlds because I think we will all need to cooperate to address these, you know, these big topics. And I think the separations, you know, um, uh, are very difficult for the current world. So I think uh, that's why I'm so interested in Hildegard von Bingen. You know, it's, it's really interesting to, to kind of look at Hildegard's holistic approach to theology, to human health, to art, to music, to the natural world. Um, we, you know, we did this Thermal Symposium the other day about, about, about Hildegard von Bingen and went to the monastery, you know, the ruins of her monastery in DC Bodenberg, you know, near Meisenheim. And, uh, and, and, you know, Hildegard's interpretation of the natural world is a, is a reflection of the divine, the world, the way she, you know, she rebelled also against the prevailing worldview that, you know, defined actually human metaphysical and cultural fields, that, you know, position to, to nature. Um, I think it's very relevant now, this, this holistic, you know, approach. And so I think from that point of view, it's interesting that you mentioned that, you know, Anna Zing is on that list because of course, so many artists read the books, you know, it has a huge impact. And I think that's certainly one of the things, you know, the world needs now is a more, is a more holistic approach. And I think, you know, all these different industries have been very separated over the last, you know, decades. And uh, by be becoming bigger and bigger industries, the separation became bigger. And I think now is the moment of bringing it together again. And that's why it's interesting also um, that we think about not only about what that means for institutions, you know, it's, it's, it means maybe also that we need more interdisciplinary institutions, institutions where art, you know, science, architecture, music, literature, you know, environmentalism, all of these things can actually be addressed together uh, and not separated. And the same thing I think is true for, for schools, which is why it's interesting that the, the EU, with Ursula von der Leyen, launched this, you know, paper for the Bauhaus of the Earth. And, uh, and I'm not sure if, it's, if I particularly agree that they call it the Bauhaus, because I think it's a problematic, you know, the Bauhaus is a, you know, problematic history. So maybe it's more interesting to find a neologism. Um, but it's definitely very, very interesting that they have this idea of a, of a, of a, of a very, you know, interdisciplinary, of a very holistic school. And then the, and I think we can learn, you know, from 
from from from Hildegard. And I've been reading a lot of the Riddittas of Hildegard from Bing. And you know, for me, it's an incredible tool. I mean, we can think the future sometimes also with fragments from the past. And so here we go back to this medieval, you know, to this monk, to this nun from the Middle Ages, the nun who was also a public figure. Um, and, uh, uh, and, 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 you know, in a way, connected human and non-human life. It was all about interdependence. It was about, it was about connection. So, so I listened to Hildegard von Bingen's music every day. Very inspiring. What's next for The Serpentine? Um, our next project is the Pavilion by Theaster Gates. We have every day, uh, we have every year, sorry, a pavilion in front of the of the gallery, uh, a pavilion which is always relocated. So you know the resources are being used permanently in different places afterwards. Um, it's a temporary structure which is in front of the gallery every summer, which is also a performative space. Which is and this year it will be more. It's actually interesting in relation to Hildegard von Bingen. Because there will be a quite monastic, you know, quality to the building. Fiesta Gates has developed. It it, uh, it has a bell, you know, which we ring because obviously we need rituals. Tarkovsky always says that our world is somehow bereft of rituals. We need to kind of come up with new rituals. So we'll have a ritual of the ringing bell, you know, in Kensington Garden. And this uh, pavilion will go up in, in June. We have the Back to Earth project with... Uh, of course, uh, as well as the uh, the different performances I mentioned, uh, the poster project, you know, in, in in its different you know ramifications, and we we also have the ongoing exhibition of um, of, of, of Dominique Gonzalez Ferster, which also connects to our theme because Dominique invites us to a to a journey into the into the future. Hey, what effect does the funding of art, I mentioned what Gary Hume said, yeah, the, yeah. you know, the, the wealthiest people in the world, the plutocrats, the, the, the impact of the, the weight of money within the art industry. And one would also have to raise the question of the way in which the fossil fuel industry has used investment in arts to, uh, to build its brand and profile. Yeah, I mean, we have a, an ethical committee at the, um, at the Serpentine, and it's of course very important that uh, um, that that in every situation, you know, and the environmental aspect is very important in that the environmental consideration in terms of you know the um, the the ethical committee, and I think that's that's one aspect, you know, that there is uh, um, an ethical committee involved. I think not only at the Serpentine, but in many you know in many museums now, um, and I think in terms of inequality, I think what what is important is is the idea also. Of um, of this being for everyone, no. I think the, I mean, Tim Berners Lee invented the World Wide Web. And, you know, he said famously, "This is for everyone," and he's very concerned that actually, at this moment in time, you know, faster internet, people have to pay for, and um, and the, you know, um, a slower internet people can use. But so it's kind of the, starts to be inequality, of course, also on the World Wide Web. And at least, you know, we believe at the Serpentine in. Uh, in in free admission, I mean, all our programs, you know, have um, have free admission. And if you want to sort of address, I think, the question of inequality, I mean, free admission is not is not enough. I think we need to go beyond um, free admission because we need to think also how we can go with the art to the people. Because you know, for some people, they they don't think museums are for them, so they wouldn't come to the museum. So we need to create an interface how they can encounter art. In society differently and that of course can happen you know through public art um it's, it's fascinating right now how many artists you know again 
have a desire to work with public art, you know, no dolls, right? There's no dolls. The art can kind of go to the people. Um, and then uh, our pavilions are that. There are no dolls with the pavilions. People can just walk in, you know. Um, and, and, and very often it means also actually to go into, into different neighborhoods, into different boroughs, you know, just, just not think that everybody is coming to Kensington Gardens, but actually think about how we can bring, you know, like the current Radio Bala project is also happening in um, in Barking Dagenham. So I think it's important in that sense, you know, to um, uh, to see the institution also more like as a, you know, as an archipelago and, and think also, think a lot about public art, about about this idea of what actually, you know, how, how, how we can create interfaces uh, so that there isn't uh, an inequality in terms of the, the access. That's a great vision uh, indeed, uh, Hans-Ruck. And uh, thank you so much for your time today, for, for uh, your passion and vision and uh, commitment to these hugely important environmental and ecological questions. No, thank you. It's an honor to be part of this great podcast. Green finance is increasingly presented as a crucial way to address climate change and biodiversity laws. Yet more often than not, financial alchemy is used to obfuscate and repackage dirty activities, which are then rebranded as green, thus maintaining the status quo. The Green Finance Observatory is an independent NGO whose mission is to analyse and decrypt these new financial markets based on pollution and nature's destruction. If you feel it is important to identify and debunk false green finance claims, fight climate change, profiteering and other carbon finance mercenaries, please go to greenfinanceobservatory.org where you can support its work. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. It would be great if you could leave a review and share the podcast on social media. You can sign up at iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes.